Hey there, welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Jared Lumen, the Soil Health Lead for the Sustainable Farming Association, and today we're going to have a conversation with Eric Klein. Eric owns and operates both Hidden Streams Farms and Dover Processing, and will offer a unique perspective on the topic we want to discuss today about meat processing and the shortage that there seems to be across the state of Minnesota. So Eric, thanks for being willing to share your story, and welcome to the Dirt Rich Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jared. Happy to have you on. I'm excited to hear hear your story and your perspective. Would you mind maybe just starting with kind of a overview of what all you have going on as far as businesses and, and enterprises and how you kind of came to to being in the position that you've got all those enterprises? Right, right. Yeah. So we're here on the, the farm that uh, Lisa grew up on. Her dad milked cows here for probably 40 years. And Lisa's your wife? Yeah, Lisa's my wife. Sorry. Um, we also have... Uh, Six kids range from 22 to 10. So some are actively involved in the farm. Some are when they're out of school. Some are away in college or one's away in college. So we're kind of all over the map. So we, I said, Lisa grew up here milking cows, helping her dad on the farm, went away to college. And about that time, when all of his kids left, he kind of ended the, the milking. There was no, no help left. So the cows went, but that was also the... Uh, kind of the advent of rotational grazing was starting to hit its stride. So he kind of transitioned part of the farm into a ro- rotational grazing setup into more of a managed rotational grazing where you did the smaller paddocks and moved out any, every day, not the huge 10 acre, 20 acre paddocks. So he did that on a basis of raising dairy heifers for people and starting those types of different enterprises. Then fast forward another seven, eight years, uh, Lisa and I got married, came back to the farm, um, start, both had jobs in town, and then started um, taking the lead on that side. And um, we had kind of started, or he had kind of started dabbling in some direct marketing, a little bit of pork chickens. SFA was a big, big factor. Back in that day, they were doing a pasture chicken. They even did a cookbook and a land stewardship project and sustainable farming association kind of worked together and helped really bring that to this area, the rotational grazing, um, pasture broilers. Uh, I think they even did a cookbook together way back, way back in the day. So that was kind of the, the early days of the direct marketing. I'm curious. When when you got out of dairy, did you have cropland as, as well as the pasture land, or were you did they kind of just go all into grazing at that point? No, he still he kept kind of a main area around the farm in grazing, mm-hmm. and then there was still another hundred and some acres of cropland. So he yeah he didn't 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 go all all in. He just kind of took one portion of the farm that was cropland and turned that into pasture. And still is in rotational grazing to this day. So we just kind of evolved into the uh, direct marketing. What we saw as a way to add value to the farm and how we were going to get things get things moving. We knew as a small farm and a young family, being in commodity agriculture just wasn't, wasn't going to work unless we wanted to stay working in town and do what everybody else does. So we saw the alternative of direct marketing and just kind of Started small with a little bit of grass-fed beef and some pork and chicken and going to farmer's markets and just kind of evolved. 
Yeah. So you, you started, I was just going to ask how you kind of got started with that, reaching out, you know, getting your first customers. And it sounds like farmer's markets was a big part of those early growth stages. Yeah. Farmer's markets, you know, just word of mouth back before we were working in the, the wholesale area, we were just doing retail, um, mm. local, you know, local people, local people in town that just wanted to source an alternative for, for good food for their families. And so how did that evolve to where you are now? And yeah, I guess, and when you get there, you can share a little bit about what you're doing today. Right. Um, so as we just, I said, as, as we evolved, we were part of other co-ops groups that have tried to grow over the years. There's always been a lot of reinventing the wheel of local food, been a part of a lot of that, at least in this region. Um, different food networks, food co-ops, pork co-ops. <laughs> We've seen a lot of different <laughs> things. But a lot of that also helped propel us to where we are now. One group, we started working together cooperatively into branching into the Twin Cities market. And that allowed us then to expand you know, our reach. So when that kind of fell apart, we already had a presence in the Twin Cities. So we've built on that for the last probably 20 years, expanding wow. those those customers and the base and not only doing wholesale now, but also doing retail. Well, I guess I'm curious right on that before even we keep going further that this Twin Cities, you're south, you're pretty far southeast, probably hour and a half, two hours from the Twin Cities or something. How how have you connected with folks in the Twin Cities and managed to some somewhat efficiently get meat to and to them without kind of wasting a lot of time and fuel and the, you know, hassle trying to get up there and back all the time. Right. Um, yeah. So we're, you know, we're by Plainview, Minnesota. So yeah, it's a good hour and a half before you even start your route. So it just comes down to, you know, we started with that initial commitment that even if it's just one customer, you know, we're going to make that delivery every week. And it went faster than we expected. We didn't know if it was going to be in the back of a car for how long, you know, or coolers. But um, we've gone through several different stages of different size vehicles to do all that. But again, 20 years ago, local food was really starting to, to hit its stride. The chefs were, were really hungry for where can we get source good proteins. We also were able to work with other local farmers and develop into a local food distribution hub so that one chef could find produce, he could find eggs, he could find our meats and being able to offer that. So that just kind of helped keep the truck full and keep the efficiency. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize, are you still doing that today? That kind of distribution hub working with other farmers or are you producing primarily most all of what you market through your own? No, we do. We do. We drag in from, or not drag in. <laughs> we, we source product from uh, other people all over the place within the region, probably within a 50 mile radius of the farm here in Elgin. So we source the eggs, we source the vegetables, you know, nuts in the right times of the year. We do uh, foraged like morels, ramps, nettles, whatever. If a chef is looking for something, they'll usually call us and say, Hey, I need, I'm looking for this. Can you find it? And then we can tap into our network of other farmers who don't want to make that drive to the cities, you know, on a weekly basis, there's people with the microgreens, you know, they can't justify driving up there for a $10 clam of, of uh, microgreens. But if it works with us, 
they bring it to us. We get it on the truck and then it gets delivered. No, that makes sense. That's actually something I've been thinking a lot about lately is like, how can there be more essentially just like that? If rather than every farm trying to raise beef, pork, chicken, lamb, you know, eggs, all the other vegetable crops. I mean, if we could do more collaboration where farmers can, you know, work together and master a certain enterprise and stuff, you know, that, that could be a really interesting thing. And it sounds like you've already kind of developed that. Right. Yeah. So that was just kind of, that's what we evolved into. I kind of had experience in transportation. Before I moved to the farm, I had a, just a small trucking company, just kind of a one man band, you know, hauling grain and cattle and that type of thing. So I was used to the logistics and making things work and getting it where it needed to go and cold chain. And, you know, you got to make sure your, your quality is there. That buzzword of cold, cold chain is a, is a strong point to, to your end, end customers on the wholesale level. Sure. So what did the farm side evolve to uh, up to this point, I guess? Did you continue to diversify and expand the, the grazing-based enterprises, or did you begin to realize maybe that margins were more in the marketing and distribution end and, and begin the, working with other farmers to expand your, your product base? or? Right. Well, <laughs> that's a very good good question. Yeah, the uh, the farming side is definitely the the hardest part, but we still continue. We raise all of our own pork. You know, we source feeder pigs, and then we finish them out. But we we just source pigs that meet our qualifications or raising standards. Um, we're still doing grass fed beef. We still do pasture raised chickens. So we still do all of that. Then we know the quality. But at times, you know, we also work with other farmers too. People say, hey, I've got an extra beef ready to go. And, you know, they put so much hard work and effort into raising a, a premium grass-fed product. They don't want to take it to the sale barn and get docked because it doesn't it doesn't fit that idea of what a, what a steer is supposed to look like. You know, that's fed corn or something. So so we, we do offer that if I can get them in. Same thing with hogs if I need to or the chickens are all all our own. We don't source any of them, but but I, I try to work with other farmers too to help help them out as well. And then we do uh, crops too. Okay. We rent a lot of land, and just as of this this year now, twenty twenty two now, everything will be certified organic. So we do all organic crops as well. And do you sort do you use the, those crops to feed your livestock, or are they marketed kind of as a separate? Quite a bit. It's kind of a back and forth. A transitional ground works really great for for our animals because we don't certify the animals as organic. Yeah, so I'm just kind of, now that we're certified organic, now I'm in that transition time of do I feed it or do I sell it and buy buy back transitional? Yeah, no, it's hard to, it's hard to justify selling or feeding $8, $10, corn, you know, it's a livestock when right. we're in the same boat. Yep. We've raised organic crops on our farm and, and have beef cattle and our cattle are all grass-fed anyway and stuff. But part of that is because it's pretty hard to justify feeding that expensive, valuable corn through a cow when they can do mm-hmm. it, just find themselves on grass. But you've also probably found, you know, you said you don't certify your livestock. Is that because you've been able to develop just trust with your customers and that you haven't felt that's necessary or headaches and hassles that right. come along with it? Yeah. Yeah. That's then that's been a long, long standing thing. You know, people are like, well, you know, I can certify organic. It's not that hard because we're basically there, but how much more do you want to pay? 
And they're like, well, no. <laughs> then they kind of, when you, when you start hitting the pocketbook, then it's, um, no, we, we know you. We know you do a good job. We know your meats are really good. So, no. It's that know your, know your farmer, know your food type thing where I don't think organic, you know, if it's commodity, I can see the value. But when it's a one-on-one -on -one relationship, I think knowing, knowing where your food come, comes from trumps organic certification. Sure. I, I agree. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious before we move on to your processing side again, now this, this, uh, distribution and marketing chain has got me intrigued. My wife and I are kind of trying to do the same thing and having questions of, you know, what things should we invest in? Um, you know, some sort of on-site freezer, cold storage chamber, you know, or, uh, you know, a van that's a reefer van of some sort to do marketing or to do deliveries. And I'm curious from your perspective, is there, what would you prioritize maybe as a business grows and expands as far as early investments and later investments in it? Is there certain stages at which point you would say it's worth jumping into a van or a, you know, an on-site cold storage or something like that? Right. I mean, cold storage is very important, especially if you're dealing in just 100% frozen. The majority of what we do is fresh. We actually have, we started a fresh program way back in the beginning when we started. So we, it's basically fresh on the pork side. And then the beef, we always have beef hanging so we can cut up a half or whatever needs to be done. But our pork program, um, we get all of our orders in. We kill on Tuesday, cut on Wednesday, deliver on Thursday. And we've been doing that since, <laughs> since who knows when. You know, it's always, that's always been our week. Kind of like a guy milking cows, you know, you milk cows every day. Uh, we're not doing seven days a week, but that's what the customers we supply if they want pork butts or pork loins, we're bringing that in fresh. Or if they want a half a pig, we're a lot of people. And, you know, when you're smaller, you need to do that on a frozen aspect because also your processor's not going to have that ability. So, you know, that whole freezer van thing is kind of a chicken and egg thing. You still, you need to have that storage. You need to have that capability. And we say you can't sell, you know, cookies from an empty cookie jar type of deal. So you got to have, you got to have inventory and you got to have a freezer for that. I mean, if you can rent space, that's fantastic. That gets hard to come by lately. But um, we went through, like I said, we went through a lot of different vehicles. We started with a refrigerated trailer that I pulled with a pickup and a generator in the back and drug that all over the Twin Cities. I don't know how I ever did that. And then I went through three different dock trucks of varying sizes and power and repairs and then kind of right around the time of covid we had actually switched to uh, a van a refrigerated delivery van like a sprinter that's been just a huge asset it's so flexible and it's a pain when you got your big stops that had loading docks that you gotta throw everything up but mm -hmm. when you weigh how many are that way and how many are out of the back door it's maybe a couple a day or something like that so the van's the van's been a really good asset for that. No, that's that's kind of the route we've been looking at doing at some point. Just kind of seeing the future of you know the Amazon kind of shift towards the Amazon direct to doorstep. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. once somebody's done it, prove that it's possible. That's kind of the way it seems like the industry should be going. And so, do you think that's necessary for long term the average producer to to be a viable direct market 
based you know farm or uh, will there be room to do something different i think i think it depends on your region and what kind of region are you going to cover if you're going to try and go nationwide then it really has no no purpose other than to go pick pick up your product um, if you're going to stay within that 150 200 mile radius and you're willing to drive then i think it has a lot of merit and value you know we're all we're all in this meat business and we're all dealing with a perishable product and we all want to get it there next day. And shipping has just become a nightmare because everybody is shipping. Like you said, Amazon shipping. These guys, you know, here in our region, we have speedy delivery. 75% of the time, they're great. That other 25%, you wind up, you know, that that order just cost you twice because you got to ship it twice or Mm -hmm. the second time you have to go deliver it yourself. Sure. Because you find out, oh, well, we've been backed up in that region for, you know, for the last year. We still can't get caught up. A lot of people listening won't know the area, but, um, you know, just for example, Speedy Speedy has had just a horrendous time the last two years in that Anoka Blaine area. So I I hate to take a van all the way to that side of the city, but I know I'm going to be shipping it two or three times if I try to do it all with Speedy. And then I'm just cost myself all this money and hassle and coolers and ice and all that and and product that I can't can't get back. So we've kind of taken it on ourselves to do the delivery. Sure. And that's where we had we had tried doing that delivery method early on using FedEx and things and it just I don't know, maybe we they I don't know. We it didn't work for us. <laughs> and so we've gone right. to back to just central pickup or direct to door delivery ourselves for within a certain range of our, our freezer space and it it's it's an interesting conversation though cuz you know I think that there's merit in that and it, but there also has to be a certain amount of probably scale and you know product you're moving with each trip to justify the trip and the the expense into the equipment and whatnot. So something we got to think about and I appreciate your perspective on that. But uh when did you guys decide that processing, well, I guess, what did you do for processing early on? And what, when did you decide that maybe that was something you would need to do yourself? So we'd always use just a variety of processors. You know, we're kind of, we're really fortunate in this corner of whether Minnesota or this corner of the U.S. Uh, we just have a plethora of USDA plants around us. Some have closed, some are just overloaded, but at the time there were, four or five different plants within about a 40 mile radius. And somebody listens is going to be like, Holy crap, I got to drive, <laughs> yeah. you know, 200 miles just to get to the closest one. <laughs> you know, our, our chicken processing plant was 30 miles away and we had everything, you know, we were living, living large as far as processing. And that, that worked. There was a lot of different inconsistencies about how things, and they all cut different and some want to work with you some don't. We just kind of saw the writing on the wall that if, if we wanted to grow, that we were kind of outgrowing the capacity of these older plants. I've heard the term, you know, they were called creamery generation meat plants. And, you know, they're the small plants. They don't have a loading dock. Everything comes in outside door, that type of thing. It just makes it logistically a little difficult. A lot of it's hand, hand portion, hand stuff. And we just kind of saw the writing on the wall and saw that, you know, the area also kind of needed more, more capacity. You know, even though we had all these plants, there was still a need for more capacity Mm -hmm. just because there's so many, 
farmers that that still couldn't get in because these small plants can only can only hold so many animals a day. So it didn't happen overnight. You know, I spent about four years trying to design and plan and figure out how this was all going to work before we actually were able to put the rubber to the road. I mean, I guess like you, you, you kind of alluded to there, there is this shortage, even in an area with so many people, they're all overloaded and full. And yet with all this demand, why do you think there's not been either upgrades to existing plants to make the, you know, the infrastructure match the demand or, you know, new plants going up more frequently? I mean, why is, where's this shortage coming from if the demand is there? Um, you know, the old plants are also generational and there isn't necessarily the next generation or the plants old enough that it's just not upgradable. Think of like an old dairy, you know, they they hit that point where do I put in a whole brand new parlor or do we just retire or do we just run it till we can't anymore? I don't think a lot of these are upgradable. And I'm thinking in, I'm thinking in terms of USDA because we're USDA inspected. But to meet the levels of USDA, it would just be a lot of a lot of work involved to bring them all up to where where they want them to be. Yeah, I guess what is the difference then between USDA custom exempt and I think Minnesota Equal Two is the other alternative. What are those differences and and challenges and both for the producer side and what it means for the the actual processor? Right. So just kind of work from the top down. With USDA, um, as many people know, you can go across state lines. You can do, you can sell anywhere into any marketplace, any region. Uh, there's no no limitations on you. State equal to gives you a lot of that same ability within the state as far as selling to restaurants, farmers market. Custom exempt then is going to be your not for sale stamp. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of it, but they're not supposed to be selling ground beef on Craigslist that's marked not for sale. (laughs) I have a lot of USDA inspectors that just go crazy when they see a picture of that. Oh, you see it all the time too. Like the opening photo on the ad is this piece of beef that says not for sale. (laughs) It's kind of funny. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and you and I, they're trying to do it on on par and with the rules and the laws, you know, makes it difficult. But yeah, yeah. um, But for, you know, for a guy that just wants to sell quarters and halves, which is a great way to go, it's sometimes it's a lot more profitable than trying to piecemeal everything and all the labor like we talked about. Do I put it in a freezer? Do I get a van? That's a, a great way to go. And it's a lot more, a lot cheaper way too. Yeah. And then for your side, on the processor's side, you know, it would make sense then with USDA giving more opportunity to the farmer that every plant would just be USDA inspected. But what are the other headaches that come along with that? Or why are more processors not USDA inspected? Just like you said, a lot of headaches, all the, all the regulatory, you know, you've got an inspector there all the time, every day, watching over you, checking all your books, checking all your forms. Um, They just, you know, because you're, you're going into interstate commerce, they want to make sure your food is safe. And I guess, you know, that's not a bad thing. But it is more it is more of a headache. You know, you have to give them an office. You have to design an off as you're designing your plant, you have to build a space for them where they have their file cabinet and their desk and their internet connection. And um, a lot of times they want a bathroom too. So we had to build all that into the plant when we built. 
Are you responsible for paying their salary then? If their job is to focus on your, is just to be there and inspect your facility, is that an additional labor requirement that you have to carry? No, no. We all pay for that in our taxes. Okay, sure. Um, sure. If, if they go, if there's like, if we need them to work on a holiday or they run overtime, we're like, we don't get done in time. You know, we like, I think it's 7 to 3.30 is our time frame for USDA. So if kill goes too long or we need to do some additional packaging or cutting, um, then we go in overtime. So there's a lot of extra added expenses. There's another segment called voluntary slaughter, which is animals that don't fall into the uh, the norm, beef, pork, lambs, goats. If you start doing bison, elk, anything like that, deer, that's voluntary. You have to pay extra for that then too. Okay, sure. So back to your kind of decision to do this, uh, you saw the writing on the wall, realizing that maybe long-term as your farm and marketing business grew, the local supply of processing wasn't going to be able to keep up with your demand. And so you wanted to do this yourself. What was the early process of actually making that decision? I mean, like, what were the steps you took? I'm curious, just kind of thinking if there's other people in your shoes uh, who are thinking, right. you know, the same thing that maybe maybe this processing is the route that I need to go myself. What were some of those early steps you took and mm-hmm. the things you had to think right, about. Right. Yeah. Do you remember that question I'd asked or should I try and rephrase? It um, it so what, um, yeah, I have to rephrase that. Yeah. I, let me think back now. I think it was something along the lines of, so for like the guy who might be in a similar position, kind of with their marketing oh, yeah. enterprise, expanding and growing it, looking around at their local processing capacity and seeing that there may be a shortage at some point. Um, what, would you recommend to them? What were the steps that you went through to start looking at doing it yourself? And, and yeah, I guess just that conversation um, related to another. Right. I think you have to really see where your, where your volume's at, how much work you really want to do. <laughs> it's a whole lot more than I thought it was going to be. Um, mm-hmm. I was very, very fortunate. I found a really great guy to be the plant manager for me. Okay. So I got, got him kind of taking the lead. I'm like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a meat cutter, you know, we sell meat, we raise meat, but we see this opportunity and he'd been working in plants, you know, really good meat cutter, never really, I kind of feel like he was undervalued, had a lot of abilities that weren't tapped. So bringing, bringing him in from day one, even during the construction phase and, and the, the planning worked out, worked out really well. You know, we looked, I'd say if somebody's really hard set on, having their own plant, you know, we looked at different options, you know, building a almost 9,000 square foot facility, you know, wasn't the first choice. First thing is, you know, is there somebody that's on the way out that you could buy them out and assume that space? It takes a lot to cash flow. Right now it's labor's tough. Expenses are tough. Everybody sees the opportunity, but I don't know, you know, it's, it's not, it's definitely not an easy thing. There's lots of business there, but it's, it's a whole lot of work. I've been really fortunate. We've got a really good team of employees and I said manager and it does well. Yeah. And so what route did you talked about wanting to build something or looking at building something or seeing if there was somebody else? What was the route you went with getting your own established processor? We did look at other, other local plants around the area and talk to them to see what their interest was. If they were interested in in selling or moving on and that really didn't didn't go anywhere then it just kind of died for for a couple years and then we found you know kind of regained steam again opportunity and then just kind of 
one thing led to another. We had just kind of fell into place without getting into the trenches, really, of the <laughs> the whys and hows and what's what's the ugly part. It just kind of worked out. We were able to put together a pretty good group of people to help us package this together. It definitely took a village to put this together. The design, the equipment, the salesmen to work with, the, the financing side is huge side, you know, to come up with the money needed for something like that is just, you know, unless you've got it in, the, in your back pocket, then more power to you. But um, most farmers are already pretty overcapitalized, you know, and the cost of equipment and animals and everything it takes to do that side. And then you add a whole nother enterprise, you know, unless, you know, for a small farm, um, it's a, it's a big stretch, but you definitely need to have a lot of good people. Yeah. What has it meant for your farm to have that then? Like what now you've got it built. Are you, I guess if you, if you, has it been advantageous, what are the advantages that come along with it? And what has it meant for your farm to control that side of the supply chain? It's been good that we can move larger, larger volumes than what we were able to move before. So now, because we're like I said, we're on wholesale and retail on the wholesale side. Somebody comes to us and says, you know, I need a thousand pounds of breakfast links. Um, we do all the the bacon for the uh, the farmers union at state fair, you know, so we can crank that out. You know, we can do five six hundred pounds of bacon at a time in our smokehouse. Um, these other guys just had small, and to come to them, that would just be overwhelming. You know, when you've got a small plant that's, you know, maybe got four employees, uh, we run about 15 employees. So we've got a segment that's just doing slicing and packaging and that type of thing. And we've got a guy doing sausage and we've got a bunch of guys doing cutting and processing. And we've got more people in packaging mm-hmm. and you can add these things and balance. So it's given us more opportunity to go after those larger accounts mm-hmm. and move move more volume and help us utilize our product better when you're killing, you know, 12, 15 hogs a week, that makes a lot of trim. You got to be able to get that going. Sure. So what is your process? What, what did you decide to go with as far as your facility, your plant, um, as far as capacity, what animals do you process? Have you, are you currently kind of maxed out doing just your own product? Do you process for others as well? Um, and, and how did you make those decisions when you were, you know, deciding what you wanted to build? Right. No, we, I mean, we've, so we, we found an existing building Mm -hmm. that had just been sitting empty. It was a kind of a shell. So we basically worked with a, we worked with a designer and basically took the space that we had and utilized that. And plus, you know, if you're going to build a plant and the equipment cost, you still have to run a certain number of animals through the plant to justify all your costs Mm -hmm. because you're still going to have to buy a saw. You're still going to have to buy, you know, a smoker and, Mm -hmm slicers and tumblers and mixers and packaging machines Mm -hmm. it all costs money and it's really i think it's important to buy new in the long run than trying to buy buy used so no we we're only a small portion of the total plant for what the volume and capacity is we work with just a pile of local farmers that bring animals to us every every week you know a lot of people during this time have We've seen a lot of people develop into their own direct marketing companies that, that use our use our processing. We had invested heavily in packaging because we'd known from the beginning we had 
the small plants that did the uh, El Bar Sealer, the shrink film packaging. And we always knew we wanted something better than that. So whether it's vacuum seal or the roll stock packaging, where, you know, the roll stock, you can just run fast. You can, if you've got several hundred pounds of one product, you can put it in the pocket and just run it through. You're not filling bags. Um, that increases your efficiency. It's an expensive machine, but so we just, we knew we wanted to be better than the other plants and to be able to offer that quality and consistency. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what, what uh, species are you processing there? So primarily beef, pork, lamb, and then on occasion we do goats, we do bison mm-hmm. uh, a few times a month, elk, um, elk, not as much now. Most of those guys have had to get out of business, but that's kind of our main, our main five. But the, the, the beef and the pork is what keeps us alive. And so overall, I mean, the, the whole kind of conversation is around like Minnesota is really short. It seems like in processors, even in an area that has like, I mean, you're right. We still have probably four or five, I mean, within the Southeast Minnesota region that I can think of and stuff now, but there's a shortage, they're all full. And so I guess having gone through this, you can speak kind of to the business side and without needing to give numbers and talk about how profitable it is or not profitable or something. I'm curious if you could just kind of share with the listener, somebody who maybe is thinking about doing it, recognizes a need in their community um, and is considering doing it themselves. You know, is this a worthwhile venture? Is there potential to generate, you know, make a good living to provide a decent salary for yourself and your family and and uh, and add something to community or is are the challenges of labor and management too great that it, it may or may not be worth it to to try right no i no i think it's definitely you know if you find those those regions that really need it which there are i know i think it's a great opportunity um for somebody that really likes to cut meat you know and work with customers no i think it's definitely a good a good opportunity for, for people to take on i encourage it especially there's so many so many small towns that are really in need of that I can just see the the need, you know, we're, we're taking orders for 2023 or slots where people want to get those animals booked to make sure they don't, they don't get left, left out. So I'd say the more, more plants we can get out there, the, the better. There's a lot of big plants that have big minimum numbers and that gets kind of hard for a small direct marketer. Mm-hmm. But for somebody that wants to start a plant, I think, I think it's a good opportunity. It certainly helps. It helps you with your customer as well, mm-hmm. that you can give them exactly what they want. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I uh, appreciate you sharing that. If it, Going back then, having gone through this experience, is there things that you would have done differently? Are there things that you would change or you would recommend someone do uh, early on when making this decision, resources you would point them towards or anything like that? In regards to meat processing? Meat processing primarily, yeah. yeah. You know, we were kind of, well, I'm kind of used to it. We're seems like we're always ahead of the curve <laughs> on this stuff. Always have been. Um, you know, right right now it's great because there's so many resources. Before it was like, oh, that's great. Yeah, we could use one of them. Now nationwide, it's we got to increase capacity. And how yeah. can we help you? There's a lot of programs. There's a lot of assistance. There's so many more resources. So many more opportunities in financing options the uh guys selling you the equipment they aren't cutting any breaks but but the uh the, there's just so much whether it's 
um, federal or state level or nonprofits, there's a lot of opportunity. It's probably a good time to tap into those money, those different types of money and capital. Sure. Cool. Well, on the kind of the whole conversation here, I mean, you've got this awesome experience of seeing both sides, the farm side, the distribution and marketing side and the processing side. Are there any other thoughts that are worth sharing with the listener who might be in any one of those kind of enterprises who might be involved in any one of those, something that I haven't asked you that you think is worth sharing? Um, you know, I just say it's just a probably, a you know, it's a good opportunity. So many people were having this resurgence of consumers wanting to know where their food comes from again. There was about a five to eight year lag where it kind of fell off. And, you know, the good side of COVID, you and I both, you know, we had our websites already in place, I think, for yeah. for retail when this happened. It's a great time as all these young farmers are getting out there and wanting to figure out how to get rid of that corporate job or mm-hmm. quit working in town. There's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of opportunity out there of customers wanting to know and somebody wanting to do a meat plant. There's so many people that want, they don't want to go to the big stores and buy their meat. They would rather know who's cutting the meat than feel good about what they're feeding their family. Well, I appreciate it. I, I think you've got an awesome story. You guys have done an amazing job, you and your family, of building this business that is diverse and resilient and, and you know, and regenerative. I mean, you're, uh, I guess you're building a community. You've offered jobs in this community. You're offering, you know, opportunities for farmers who maybe don't have the marketing or, or distribution capacity to market products through you guys. I mean, you're, you're doing a lot for rural Minnesota and I think it's awesome. And I really appreciate you just sharing, sharing the story today. And yeah, if there's somebody who wants to reach out or learn more about what you're doing, uh, where would you direct them to find you? Um, they can just shoot me an email, Eric at hiddenstreamfarm.com. Or they can go to our website, hiddenstreamfarm.com. Cool. Well, that's perfect. I really appreciate it. And thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture, done well, heals. For more resources or to tap into the Farmer to Farmer Network, visit us at sfa-mn.org.